Season 5 of Angel is brought to you by Odoo is a fully customizable and fully integrated suite of software that lets you build and scale your stack as you build and scale your business. Your first app is free forever, and right now, Odoo is offering $1,000 off your first implementation pack at odoo.com slash twist. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash twist. LinkedIn Jobs. A business is only as strong as its people, and every hire matters. Post your first job for free at linkedin.com slash angel. And our crowd helps you invest early in pre-IPO companies alongside professional VCs. If you're interested in investing, you can join our crowd for free at OurCROWD.com slash twist. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Angel Season 5. That's right. We've come back. We're doing another 10 episodes of Angel, uh, which is the sister podcast of This Week in Startups, where we interview people who are investing in startup companies and who have been doing it for a long time. Uh, First up, David Tisch. Uh, He's a general partner at Box Group, and he's been doing that since 2007. When I met him, last time he was on the podcast was back in May of 2011. He was on episode 143. And here he is back on episode 1100 and something. How are you been, my friend? Uh, New day, uh, same thing. But thanks for having me back on, Jason. Well, I mean, it's it's worth pausing for a second and looking back at what happened over the last decade, 10 years ago. Has anything happened? The market just went up and to the right. In a way, yes, the market went up and to the right. Um, we started angel investing, you and I, right as the market was coming out of the Great Recession. So it was a very interesting time. Describe for people who maybe weren't investing at that time, let's call it the 2008 to 2012, 2015 vintage of startups before we had SPACs, before we had you know, Bitcoin 30,000 and, and all this craziness. Uh, there was a moment in time when companies like Uber or Thumbtack were pitching at the Open Angel Forum, uh, a project you and I worked on together back in the day. Explain to people what the, what that time period was like for startups. Totally. Contrast it today. Yeah, I think the the easiest thing to identify was that this was a rebel job. You weren't doing something that was talked about or taught in schools, which it is today. You weren't doing something that people wanted to do. Uh, it was sort of off the cuff. It was a uh, opt-in industry. People had to find their way to it and want to invest in startups. The risk was enormous. There wasn't a sort of proven out set of returns. As you said, we were coming out of uh, 2008, but even more so, you were still in the remnants of the dot-com bust. And so there were definitely interesting new companies that had emerged at that point. In New York specifically, where I'm from, you had uh, Etsy, which started in, in probably 2005. Facebook was developing, and Facebook was obviously this new, monumental, important company, but there was still immense skepticism 
as to if Facebook was real. They weren't making money. They were, were not cool this week. And then they expanded outside of like colleges into high schools. And every time Facebook added a button, it was a news story. And so the moment was different. This wasn't a established world. There wasn't a set of resources for new investors. There was not a set of resources for entrepreneurs. Why Combinator was nascent, but emerging and clearly something important, but newer. Um, even though it had started years earlier, it was still newer. And uh, today you have a mature ecosystem in almost every part of technology on the company side and on the investor side. It was interesting at that time period, we would do this open angel forum. You were running New York. I was, I was running LA and Saka was running and Kevin Rose were running San Francisco. I guess Brad Feld and, and some of the team were doing uh, Boulder. And at that time, the number of angel investors was very finite. We had a hard time finding 10 angel investors in New York to come to the event. Talk about that, like how hard it was to find an angel investor and even companies like we, we had to work to get six or seven companies to come present, right? Yeah, it was it was just such a different world because again, it was like sort of a rebel job. You had to want to fund this really risky asset class. And at that time, there was enough volatility in the public markets that you were able to make money uh, in, in many other ways, that this wasn't looked at as a primary source of quality investments. And so uh, whether it was part-time investors like doctors, lawyers that were extensions of sort of how they were spending their capital, or it was a early group of former founders or executives at uh, big tech companies in New York, uh, finding that group of angel investors. And, you know, angel is a is a funny word, right, as, as we'll probably talk about. Angel technically means investing your own capital. And over time, a lot of those angel investors became, ba became backed by outside investors. And uh, technically, some version of VC, even though we've labeled them super angels or, or, you know, early stage investors. And so I think there was a, a group of people that were investing their own money back then, but it was, you know, a handful, not uh, a plethora. Yeah. And, and back then, the ability to do a round of financing, um, it, it took a month or two and the velocity, you know, was much slower. Much, much absolutely, and and there were Talk less seed. That. There were less seed firms. There was a handful, right? There was first round capital, uh, you know, Clavier um, at, at Soft Tech Encore. back then. Yeah, rebrand. Um, yeah. You know, Steve Anderson at Baseline, but they were doing mostly West Coast deals. They weren't doing East Coast deals. There yeah. wasn't this established seed industry in New York. Roger Ehrenberg had kicked off IA and was doing some great work, but the traditional firms were focused on Series A, and Series A is. Size-wise, what today's seeds are, but Series A was a three to eight million dollar round for twenty to twenty-five percent of a company, and the sub three million dollar round, that seed round, um, it, it was just a non-established market at the time. And um, over time, you basically saw new entrants on the venture side uh, emerge as, as seed investors in New York. It was, you know, Thrive Capital started as early stage investors. Lair Hippo uh, emerged as a force and uh, Box Group. Uh, we've been doing that for now 11 years uh, based in New York, writing, you know, a lot of early stage checks every year. Our portfolio is geographically diverse, but our, our home is New York. And you, correct me if I'm wrong here, you are, 
you originally started investing your own money, but then you raised outside capital and you have a, a fund properly backed by LPs. Uh, so now you're investing other people's uh, money. And your typical check size, if I remember correctly, 250, 500K in that early seed round. Uh, you're not a Series A investor. And I don't think you're pre-product launch typically, uh, but typically describe your Goldilocks zone, what you're trying to do with that yeah, 250K absolutely. to 500K check. We were... um so originally uh, non-LP backed and actually uh, lasted until 2019. So we never took outside capital until 2019. So it was about a decade of internal capital. So my own money and uh, funding startups, um, we looked like a firm. We were just uh, sort of a scaled angel investor. And uh, in 2019, decided to take on some outside capital. Uh, we raised two funds, $82.5 million each, so $165 million uh, of capital that we're managing today as a, I guess, a VC. I hesitate to say that. I like angel investor better, yeah. but uh, we are VCs. Uh, we're early stage. Early is... Uh, early as anything. It can be ugly. It can be two people in an idea. It can be a product. It can be um, a Figma uh, drawing. It literally can be anything. Traction's great. Traction in this market is like a Series B. So uh, mm -hmm. we'll take uh, anything we see. 250 to 500. Um, we will lead pre-seed deals. So a sub $2 million deal, we're happy to write a term sheet and lead. And that check will be sort of 500 to a million. And then in a traditional seed round, which is above $2 million or so, uh, we'll write a 250 to 500K check targeting the second or third biggest check on a cap table. We'll do so before you find a lead. So if you don't have a lead and we meet you and you want to raise 5 million bucks, uh, we'll commit and then we'll help you find that lead. And so we'll work with you uh, from the, the onset to help put that round together. How many deals did you do in your first decade of investing or so, you know, leading up until this having a fund? Yeah, um, about 350 deals. Wow, 350 deals. 350 so it's a 30, you know, 25 to 35 a year average. I, I just realized I've broken 250 in that same period of time. And that really is like a super angel mentality. You're really placing uh, a lot of bets. And that's why we decided to kick off you know, uh, this season of Angel, which we're calling our Super Angel series uh, with you, David, because managing that many portfolio companies and placing that many bets, that is a certain specific strategy that you're trying to deploy. When we get back from this commercial break, I want to know how does somebody doing 350 investments um, and having that one-to-one -one relationship with those founders, what are they betting on in terms of how many outliers do you expect out of every, I don't know. So how many... 100x returns do you expect uh, to have in a 350 uh, company portfolio when we get back on Super Angel? As somebody who's invested in over 250 startups, oh my God, has it been that many? Well, I want to talk to you about a serious pain point that I see all the time with my startups too high of a burn. They're just spending too much money and the runway is too short. One of the things that people have spent a ton of money on these days is buying SaaS products. Great idea. Make your company more efficient. But what if you're buying too many? What if you're not using some and then you're wasting all this time integrating them together? Well, there is finally a solution and the solution is Odoo. O-D-O-O dot com slash twist. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash twist to get $1,000 in credits. That's right, $1,000 in credits. Odoo is a fully customizable and fully integrated suite of software 
that lets you build and scale your stack as you build and scale your business. It's simple, it's modular, and you only pay for what you use and you can just add components as you grow. You can do project management, invoicing, sales, marketing automation, help desk, timesheets, inventory, and so much more. For example, their accounting products are perfect for anyone who upgraded from Excel or QuickBooks, but doesn't want to break the bank with some of the more expensive options out there. And they're going to give you $1,000 right now on your first implementation pack. That's right. Not a joke. They're going to give you $1,000. They really want you to try the product. Odoo.com slash twist. Check it out. Odoo.com slash twist. Welcome back. Season five of Angel. This is our super angel series. We're going to talk to people who've invested in a lot of companies, people who have really been doing this uh, for a long time, let's say 10 years plus like David and myself and how the dynamic changes when you've got hundreds of portfolio companies and what the goal is. I guess it's really easy to do in retrospect. I looked back on my first 100 investments and counted how many unicorns, looked back on my 200, counted how many unicorns. And obviously it takes five, six, seven years, I think you would agree, to figure out if it's going to be a unicorn or not when you're an angel investor, you kind of, or it's going to be a big return. What is your expectation in a, a 350 investment portfolio? How many will be 100x returns? How many will be 500x returns, 50x returns? How do you think about the math? Or do you not think about the math and you just have crazy faith? I was going to say, I, I'm not going to answer your question directly because okay. I don't think in that uh, framework. Every mm -hmm. single time we're fortunate enough to meet a founder that we are excited to back, we believe that what we are investing into is a unique opportunity, a unique potential outlier company. Obviously, that doesn't happen every time. I think it's easy for investors to do the math and to play out probabilities and to look back and sort of look at each one of these decisions as a number. But behind that number is a, is a person, a team of people who've put their life into that one company. They get an mm -hmm. N of one. We get a portfolio. So it's a, it's an unfair uh, business model shift in terms of what we do versus what a founder does. A founder has to bleed for their company. And in reality, as an early stage investor, 50-ish more percent of your companies will not work. In that situation, that means- and that Will not work, you mean go to zero, shut down, return zero capital, and the founder spent 5, 10, 15 years of their life, and it didn't work. Yes. And, and that is the humanity of it. In a way, what I like about what you're saying, David, is- you know, if you just use another analogy, like, does anybody set out to make a bad movie? Does anybody Correct. who's producing that movie, any studio that backs it, do they say, you know what, let's produce a really bad movie. Let, let, it's just, you know, we're, we're going to do 100 movies. Who cares? They're actually looking with intent, right? And you have that intent to back something that you believe in and that the founder believes in every and, single and, time. And every time we make an investment, we should be able to articulate to you being an outsider why we believe that can be a standalone magical company. You use unicorn, whatever word you use. It should be a standalone magical company. And that founder that we're investing in, in reality, we're trying to identify the best founders. Mm -hmm. And so we should be playing in sort of the top echelon of deal flow. So we're not funding anybody and everybody. We fund about one out of every hundred companies that we see. So 1% in that decision is a person, is a team, is an idea that they are so deeply um, 
behind that they are going to commit their life to it. And it's not going to work every time. And I think that's the humanity of this business that is so hard to articulate in the media, in a, in a printed news story is what it actually takes. And I think there's a sort of empathy. Uh, we call it entrepreneurial empathy that we as a firm have to have when we think about our business. We don't take our business problems and put them on our founders. It's not a, even saying the word our founder, I hate it. I, I would rather say yes, the companies. Our companies. Were yeah. It's the companies that I am fortunate to be able to invest in. And that's like really the relationship. Partners. You know, I say our partners because we, we are entering a partnership, right? We're bringing capital and hopefully some network or hopefully, you know, some patterns we've seen before that could be helpful. You know, yeah, I, I pray that like, I'm adding enough value for them to call call us uh, their partner. I just think we are fortunate to back people who are building something from mm -hmm. the ground up that one day can become a monumental part of the economy, of society, of industry. Uh, and and looking back over ten years, we've been very lucky to be part of a lot of those stories. And what are the big hits from the first uh, decade? From the first decade of investing uh, for 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 you, David, as yeah, a, a super angel. Um, you know, you look we at were, your returns, the top three returns, you know, we, it, it's, it's timely. And, um, we were, you know, one of the earliest investors in Plaid. Um, and so Plaid was uh, a company that we met, um, you know, day one and we're fortunate enough to uh, be allowed to invest into. And, uh, they've had a, a quite the public journey, uh, to this point. Um, some others explain from that journey. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, and they, they, them? uh, y yesterday, uh, I guess, I don't know if I'm supposed to date this, but yesterday, uh, they decided to, uh, break up with Visa. So they, um, had been, there was a merger. There was a merger for $5.3 billion and the, the government decided to, uh, cause some trouble and the companies decided to stop the merger. And so Platt has suddenly gone from a, you know, exited company or a theoretically exited company, uh, back to a private company. And I think the, the irony is, uh, a year later, that deal was announced a year ago, uh, the market for what Platt's doing is probably uh, a lot greater than the exit that they, uh, were fortunate enough to find. Oh, really? Cause that was going to be about a $5 billion merger. Um, I don't know if it was a merger of equals, but you met them in what stage? And then what did you see in the founders? Yeah, we met them day one. Uh, Zach actually uh, was an intern uh, at Techstars when I was running it uh, in our last program at Techstars before we you left. You were running Techstars New York for people. I was running Techstars New York and uh, I left to do Box Group full time and Zach was one of our early investments uh, after we left. And Zach was uh, somebody, he had won uh, an award at Bain for the most hours clocked by a analyst, which at, at a firm like Bain is probably really hard to win. Uh, and Zach wow. at Techstars was, uh, our, our, just a unique outlier of an intern. And it was an intern, but he was, uh, just intelligence wise, uh, off the charts with the, with his ability to sort of look at the portfolio companies we had invested in, uh, and, and jump in and help them. And Zach and his co-founder, William, who, uh, were friends from college, uh, had identified an opportunity in fintech uh, that they wanted to attack. And it really uh, involved labeling fintech data. So as all the charges were coming onto credit cards, it was, how do you label it? And uh, in essence, what happened was they started the company. And in order to get the data to label, they had to figure out how to get the data. Mm. And that's what Plaid became, was the way to get the data out of the banks. And that connector, uh, this simple connector from uh, basically app to, to banking system, 
uh, is the core of what Plaid is today. So we were uh, fortunate enough to be in their earliest round and um, have known them for uh, a long time now. And they've uh, built a, a totally unique company and are back uh, as an independent company. And obviously, in the time since all this happened, blank check companies have become a thing. Obviously, my friend Shamath uh, leading that uh, and just taking uh, SoFi, I guess, uh, was announced um, as one of the SPACs he's going to do. And so that's basically something that Plaid is going to benefit from. There are other opportunities for them to explore now that the government stepped in and said, hey, pump the brakes here. And, and that, in fact, might be a better outcome for you as an investor, correct? Very many options on the table for Plaid. I think selling to another sort of financial institution at this point, the government has said no. And so luckily, there are some other avenues that they can pursue. I think the crazy thing to point out, though, is, you know, that's an investment from 2013. And it's it's back as a private company. And today, you don't know how Plaid ends. And that's the timeline of the business that we operate in is it's a decade long. And so you said five to seven years to know if it's a great company. That might be right. But it's much longer to sort of get to the end point of a company where you're actually finding inability to exit. And that delayed timeline is something that as a professional, you have to be comfortable with. And as a founder, you have to sign up for. And these are, you know, you say it lightly when you meet somebody, this is a 10 to 15 year journey. It's this, right. it's this soundbite. It's, it's yeah. cute, but think about that. Like that is a long, long time. And, it's, and that's it's what like we sign up for. looking at like a, you know, if you think about uh, building a franchise like the Knicks or the Lakers or something like what it used to take to build one before stars just moved around like willy nilly. You know, it used to you used to have, have have to have like a five to ten year plan to get to the playoffs, and then hopefully maybe have a chance of getting to the finals. And that it really is, and you know, a ten year journey. When you or another just, way to think about it is, it's the the length of a career for a professional athlete. It is literally like the length of LeBron's career to get these exits. Right? Yeah. When 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 we invested in Uber, you invested in Plaid. You know, like. Kevin Durant was coming into the league, right? Or LeBron was just getting his first playoff appearance or something, you know? Like, it is mind-boggling to think. And it's maybe two or three presidencies, you know? Absolutely. Could be like, you so, invested uh, when Obama was in there you go. office. Uh, when we get back from this break, I want to um, go through how you think about um, the amount of capital and the amount of investors that now exist, because we were that tip of the spear, you and I and Techstars and AngelList and Naval, uh, Nivi, we, we were all looking saying, you know, more people should be involved in angel investing. And lo and behold, here we are 10 years later, my syndicate's got 6,000 members in it. Uh, and we've done over 140 deals, uh, the first of which was Calm, and then AngelList has rolling funds and all this other stuff. And then there's equ equity crowdfunding platforms have blossomed. And and the crypto mania, where, which essentially was ICOs were like a, a whole startup boom in and of themselves. It might have been completely fraudulent in 99.9% .9 of the cases, but it was a boom uh, nonetheless. I want to know how that impacts <clears throat> the system in which a super angel operates, because you do not operate in a vacuum. You operate in a system and you have to change your behavior or not when you operate in a dynamic system like this where 
five times as much venture capital or six times as much venture capital is being was put to work in 2019 as compared to 2010 2010 47 billion dollars was put into venture capital globally and in 2019 300 million basically 295 million so that's a 6x difference in a decade i want to know how things change uh for for you as a super angel when we get back on super angel on angel all right the new year is here and it marks a fresh start for your small business and you are going to need talent to pursue all of these new efforts you thought about over the break. So we're hiring a ton of people at launch. Customer support. We need a new produ another producer for This Week in Startups. We need another video editor for This Week in Startups. We need a community manager. And I need people who are driven, hardworking, and who have skills, both hard and soft skills. And you know where I'm looking for them? The best place to look for talent. That's LinkedIn Jobs. You know that. LinkedIn is the greatest place to find talent. They have more than 722 million members worldwide. And let's face it, we're now a remote company and I'm willing to hire anybody anywhere. It doesn't matter to me where you live. I'm able to post jobs on LinkedIn jobs with screening questions and they will get all of those job offerings, all of those amazing career opportunities in front of the right people. And you can edit this on your mobile phone or do it on your desktop. Bottom line, LinkedIn is going to match your job with the right candidate. So I want you to visit linkedin.com slash angel. Again, linkedin.com slash angel and you can post a job there for free right now. That's right. They're giving everybody who hears my voice right now a free job listing. Some terms and conditions do apply, of course, because they're giving it to you for free. LinkedIn.com slash angel to get that first free job posting because we need to get to work. We need to do the work in 2021. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. All right, David Tish is with us. Uh, you know, I, Plaid is definitely going to be your big head. Uh, that's pretty clear. What else was in that upper echelon of startups uh, that you invested in, in terms of valuation, exit, et cetera, and meaningfulness in terms of returns. Totally, um, we've been we've been incredibly fortunate to to back some amazing people who built some great companies. And so, uh, in terms of sort of exits at this point, PillPack and Flatiron Health, and then over the summer, uh, companies like Mirror or um, Bread uh, have been real needle movers for us. But in the fund today, and again back to that timeline point, uh, these are companies that we were fortunate to invest in a long time ago. Uh, Airtable. Uh, Warby Parker, Scopely, uh, which was a very early investment for us, Oscar, um, and uh, BarkBox, Row, uh, Zipline, which was, you know, two pivots later, uh, a magical breakout company, um, Amplitude, ClassPass. Uh, there's a lot of incredible companies. I'm, I'm forgetting some and we'll get yelled yeah. at, but. But essentially, 5% um, of your investments are going to drive 99% of the. You would say 99% of the returns ultimately? I think we shoot for 10% being the, the fund drivers. If we can hit that 10% number, I think we will be very good at what we do. Um, but again, back to the empathy side. Yeah. That means one out of 10. That means nine out of 10 are not sort of living up to what you theoretically invest in. It doesn't mean that they're having personally bad outcomes, nine out of 10, but, but a lot are. And I think, um, we just try to stay thoughtful about how this business works and very long term, uh, focused in our nature. It really is interesting as you get more mature and more reps under your belt as an investor, you and I entering our second decades. Um, if you think about this, um, crazy 
profession where it takes 10 or 15 years lag to know how good you are. And you start to get an indication if you're any good, I think in years five, six, and seven, right? You can kind of get an indication based on the follow-on funding to your seed investments if they've had any follow-on funding, right? That's a really good indicator because every time they go out to market, they've got to re-establish, uh, you know, a, a price of the company and get people to buy into that price. So that's a really great indicator, but not the only one. Um, but how does it inform, uh, you know, your behavior both this long-term 10 to 15-year outcome horizon, and then only one out of 10 has any material impact on the scorecard. It is a really bizarre game when you think about it. It takes 10 years, and only one in 10 of your bets is actually ones of being material for returns. So then what does a logical person conclude? How should I behave in the second decade? And I'm, I'm guessing one of these things that you've done is double down on, hey, as a brand, we care about every investment deeply because you keep saying that, right? Like we're just lucky enough to get into these. We really care deeply about those. How does it inform how you go it's to authentic. market and interact? Yeah. It, it's authentic. I think you develop that empathy, No, I do think right? it's authentic. Yeah. No, it, it's yeah. true though. You develop that empathy because I think early on, you're just in it for the, the chase, the rush of it, and you don't actually understand the other side of it. And when you're having a relationship with a human for 10 years to not care about their journey uh, is bizarre to me. And I think- um, you know, we were going to touch on the, the rest of the ecosystem and yeah. the other investors. I think believing your markups are real is a huge mistake. It's not mm. sort of what you can drive your business decisions on because there are, there are investors out there that will mark things up and those don't end well either. And I think given the 10 year time horizon, you've seen things not just go up and emerge, but also go up and fall, uh, as well. And those are the actual lessons to me is don't count sort of wins until uh, the story's over. And I think for founders, uh, it, it's the same way, right? A great series A, B, C is not indicative of the company fully working. A lot of the times there's a lot of risk left on uh, the companies and, and execution risk. And so- mm. um, So the old don't count your chickens before they hatch is, is yeah, really it's not just, super important here. And the feedback loop is 10 years, right? That's the crazy part. It's not just like- mm. I'm getting some feedback along the way. It's the, the the full feedback loop of are you sort of making an investment monetarily that's going to pay off can be, you know, 10 years. I think the other side of, of what I'm saying is that not all investors are very good at this. And you mm. have to appreciate that, you know, when a company is raising around and they go to market, there are investors where you can feel good, right? If Sequoia invests in one of your companies, they are really good at this. Like and they're discerning pretty, and they have the best deal flow of anybody. So therefore, if you clear market with them, you have beaten out so many high quality companies, right? It is, And they'll miss too, but they're really good at this. Like everybody yes. wants to be Sequoia, if even if they don't admit it. And there's another handful of funds that you have confidence that when they are underwriting- Benchmark. Benchmark, exactly. amazing. Andreessen, Founders Fund, you know, Thrive Capital and what they've built- uh, unique quality fund and uh, Union Square Ventures for years. First round as an early stage investor. There are great yeah. investors in the ecosystem and a lot of new ones, as, as you alluded to, that are emerging, but they're also bad investors. They're investors that don't do well by the founders and mm -hmm. are sort of in the business of trying to tell founders how to build companies. And that's something that I think I've learned over the, the past decade is dangerous that not just, just I mean, think about this, right? How easy is it to be uh, uh, a venture capitalist if you have capital to invest? So if you have investors, you're, all you're you qualified. do is you have to, but you have to hang a sign on your door. 
Right. Right. You have to, I give people money for, for right. a living. And if you are a company and you need money and you go to the market and the, the top investors aren't going to give you money, you come down market. And when you come down market, not all money is created equal. And that's right. something and that I've seen over and over play out. Well, I mean, and, and it is very rare for a founder to come out and talk about when things go bad, right? Uh, but Ryan Callback uh, from Circle Up was on um, episode 1141. Uh, and he went, he, I don't know if you saw that, we had a nightmare board member. What was your take when you read Ryan Callback's, um, you know, he released the email he had previously sent like a year earlier to this board member who was, you know, calling in from his phone and was completely, you know, uh, deriding the founder and the company and just incredibly negative. What was your, according to Ryan, uh, and we invited the, uh, I forgot the name of the guy, Nick will remind me um, of who the guy was that uh, was the board member, but uh, I don't want to shame him, but I did invite him to come on the pod and he he, he ghosted me. But um, what was your thought when you read that? Oh, it's collaborative fund. <laughs> Paradox I, I think, of all paradoxes. Look, I think it's you probably important. work in a collaborative fund. Are they the worst VC in the world or are they... Uh, uh, or I, I think it's important to yeah. have the feedback from entrepreneurs out in the ecosystem, but that's not how it really happens. That's the public side of it. And I think it's important to, to sort of just tell stories that look, not all investors are going to behave well. For yeah. us, what, what, you know, we get asked all the time from founders, like, how should we know if you're good or, or anything like, and my favorite soundbite and the way that I answer that question every time is call anybody we've ever worked with. Yes, Talk to anyone 100%. in the entire portfolio and whoever they pick, I have to be confident that that person is going to say positive things about us. My lifeblood in this business is my reputation. And if we as a firm don't have customer satisfaction across every company that we invest in, we're screwed. It's going to come yeah. back to bite us. And the deals that are competitive that are doing diligence on you as an investor are going to turn you down because your reputation did not qualify for them to choose you over the other competition in the market. This is the best advice for founders is just literally do the backdoor references. Um, and, and just to put it out there, Craig Shapiro of Collaborative Fund, uh, come on the pod and talk about it. Like, I mean, he, he uh, you know, he, he, he had his say, you should, you should talk about your, what you learned. Um, but, uh, I think, yeah. I, and I think founders will respond, especially in a, in a positive or negative light, right? If yes. you are neutral, they might not engage, but if they love you, they'll reply to a cold email. And if they don't love you, they will reply to a cold Absolutely. email. Absolutely. Like I, and, and, and the reverse is true for founders. I had emailed a mutual friend of ours and I said, you know, Hey, what do you think of this company? And my phone rang within 30 seconds. And I was like, Oh. Noted. That's interesting. Yes, I, I understand what you think. And I answered it and he was like, okay, here is all the fraudulent crazy stuff that happened at this company run. <laughs> you know, like I'm, I, I, this is one of the investments I regret more than Which anything. It's a life you, lesson though, right? Yeah. Jason is, is yeah. you have, you have one reputation. And if you yes. blow it, people are, are going to talk about that behind the scenes and it's going to impact you. Is it going to stop you? No. Everybody finds a way to sort of go forward, but it's going to impact you. There will be moments in time where you and a founder don't see eye to eye um, or you disagree about what should be the next step uh, in a company when we get back from this quick break. I want to know how you handle 
irreconcilable differences or roadblocks and try to maintain your relationship, even if you feel the founder is doing something that is not in the best interest of themselves, the shareholders in the company, the stakeholders in the company. When we get back on Angel. Do you ever wish you got to invest in these incredible IPOs in 2019 or 2020? Well, our crowd investors did invest early in many of these awesome IPOs. We're seeing people were able to wet their beaks uh, from the R crowd community. And at our crowd, accredited investors can invest directly and easily, and that's super important, in startups early before the IPO or before they get bought. Our crowd has an amazing team that identifies promising companies and funds as well across a range of sectors, stages, and locations. So they're going to help you vet amazing opportunities. And our crowd investors have benefited from companies IPOing like Beyond Meat. You've heard of that, of course. And some of the companies that our crowd's community has invested in have also been acquired by buyers like Intel, Nike, Microsoft, and Oracle. They know what they're doing over there. They do a really good job vetting the companies. And the investment professionals at our crowd have already invested hundreds of millions of dollars in over 200 companies with dozens of exits. Today, you can join our crowd's investment in Future Family, the fintech innovator removing the cost and complexity barriers of fertility care as they transform the rapidly growing multi-billion dollar fertility care industry future families products give everyone the opportunity to build the family of their dreams you can get in early on future family and other unique opportunities at rcrowd.com slash twist opening an account is completely free again you got to be an accredited investor and it's o-u-r-c-r-o-w-d.com slash twist welcome back to angel season five super angel david tish is kicking us off 350 investments for box group uh you know many of them and uh, we're talking a little bit about reputation, super important for angels to think about, especially if you're going to become a super angel. And obviously people are going to do those dark reference checks. Uh, but let's, let's be honest. You can make a mistake investing in somebody. Founders, I think self select for charisma and their ability to convince people to invest in them, either with their time and coming to work for them or investing time and buying their product or investing, literally buying shares in their company. You can make a mistake. Certainly you've made a mistake and backed companies you regret or founders you wouldn't back again uh, because of something. Take me through a situation without naming names uh, and you can uh you know make it an amalgamation or you can you can blur it however you like uh to protect the innocent or guilty as it were but but take us through a scenario where you didn't see eye to eye with a founder and it was clear the relationship wasn't going to work how do you how do you handle that disconnection I, I think or, it's a quick i think it's a quick answer um yeah and i think this has changed over the the course of my time doing this it's their company I'm not in the company building business i will help i will advise if they don't want my advice they don't have to call me if they want my advice, call me. If they disagree with it, hopefully we can have a productive conversation about it. But it's their company. I come back to it, right? If yeah. they're going to lose, I'd rather a founder lose on their beliefs than on mm -hmm. mine. And I think it's important to respect their choice and their path. And I'm never going to change the amount of the percentage of companies in our portfolio that don't work. So I don't try to spend my energy or uh, mentality uh fighting 
It's just mm. not interesting. I'd rather watch them run the experiment. And if it doesn't work and they were great at running the experiment, well, let's, let's do it again. I feel like some of our best investments today are second time entrepreneurs where their first company didn't work as well as they wanted to. And those are the opportunities that I think being in this business a long time, uh, unlock. Ah, so backing the entrepreneur a second time is a real secret. I've had this. Now I've backed Josh Williams. Uh, one of my first angel investments was Gowalla. Then the and last now, guy. Now your newest investment is Gowalla. And my newest investment now is Gowalla. Yeah, funny <laughs> how that works. It's so funny. Like, yeah. uh, without going into too much detail, you know, our shares in Facebook were locked up for some technical reason for some long period of time and they eventually got some shares in Facebook. And I think it wound up because Facebook accelerated so much that maybe it was a modest return for Gowalla 1.0. <laughs> but now they've got the IP back and, you know, we, we, Last guy didn't work out his second company. And now here we are. We, we, you know, when he said he was going to do it again, I was like, where do I write the check? And he's just like, wow, Jason, you're amazing. Like, you're literally going to bet on me a third time. I'm like, how do I not bet on you a third time? Our, uh, we're an investor in a company called Row, uh, the men's health company. And, uh, Zach was a founder. We were, we backed, uh, in his first company right out of college. You mean Roman. People Ro would know it by Roman. Roman. They are on your TV on any single sports uh, game you watch. And uh, Zach came out of college, started a company, went through YC. Uh, we invested. The company was a uh, great product, didn't work out. Zach uh, sort of went back to the drawing board for about two years and uh, had some stuff he dealt with and came back and started Roman. Uh, pitched us. We were their first investor in the pre-seed round by ourselves. And uh, that company is awesome. And if wow, we, congratulations if, on that. Did they if, go public or they're spacking? They No, they're they're private and doing great and still on uh, your TV. Uh so Yeah, no, I mean uh everybody go to getroman.com slash twist. Go to getroman.com slash twist to get uh your free there you uh, go. Yada, yada, yada. Um, <laughs> but you don't uh, this podcast. You don't um you don't judge the first sort of company as a as a net like return. You judge the experiment. How great yeah. was this founder? I think yeah. the other thing you were asking earlier about this world is the markets change, right? There are yes. a lot of investors and the competition, if you will, is fierce. I think you asked me how we changed. Um, we're quirky. We haven't changed. One of the, mm. one of the strategies we've taken is to just try to play a long game here. We are who we are. Uh, we are who we say we are, and we will continue to be this style of investor. I think what that does more than anything is tells the market and tells the founder that we are going to be consistent. So when we write an early stage check into your company, two years, five years, 10 years later, we are not suddenly a growth stage firm. We are mm -hmm. not suddenly leading series A's and sitting on boards. By committing to this style of investing, we are aligning ourselves with a stage and a style of investing that we believe we are great at. We want to be, our craft is early stage investing. We would like to be the best early stage investor. It's not a lead investor. We don't sit on boards. We don't want to be a parent in the room. We want to be your friend. And that's mm -hmm. not said in a, in a disingenuous way. We actually want to do exactly what we're doing for the rest of our careers. And that's uh, a promise to the people who uh, take our money. And I think it aligns us in the right way to say, this is what we do and we're going to keep doing it so you can rely upon that consistency. Now, when you went out to raise your um, fund and you had LPs, I'm certain that people brought up with you that concentration is a critical- Great word, right? What a, what a, oh, they what a love magical that word. word. Yes. They love that word, concentration. Concentration is Ownership. what matters 
in returns. And ownership. And ownership, percentage ownership. Um, I know when I talk to folks, they looked at this like, you know, in their minds, a mess of investments. And then they would pull up like, tell me about these three companies. I was like, yeah, that founder ghosted me, never returned it. I think that one absconded with the laptops. <laughs> and, you know, uh, th- and this one still hasn't shut down the company. And I'm getting tax notifications about it. Like, there, it's so messy at the stage we're talking about here. And there's so much, you know, collateral damage and just detrius everywhere, you know, from companies nine out of 10 failing. Whereas with a company that does series Bs, you know, maybe they have one out of four fail and two return something modest or, you know, half their money. And then one out of 10 does, a, does really nicely for them. It's a, a whole different ball of wax, right? Totally. Um, and what was your answer to them about that concentration question and ownership? It's, it's the crux of our conversations with outside investors. I think the first thing is we are who we are and we're not going to be apologetic for it. And we ended up finding people who believe that the way we approach our business makes sense and we can articulate in depth why we think it makes sense. I think fighting for the win. Right. Because at the end of the day, there's one firm that gets to lead the, the round. And that's the firm that is concentrated with ownership, uh, as, as you've alluded to, which is the core of the venture model. That's what historically has been the VC model by 15 through 25% of a company in a round and hold on to your pro rata, sit on a board and, and build the company. Um, I think it's a great model for the best firms. I think it's a mediocre model for the mediocre firms who will inevitably have mediocre returns and they are not destination firms. So if you are going to compete at the tier A level with that mm. model, great model. I don't yeah. want to fight that fight. I don't think it's that interesting of a fight to fight. And if I beat Sequoia regularly, like something's wrong. Like mm. I should not beat Sequoia in a, in a head to head battle for a deal. And so why am I fighting? Instead, what I want to do is invest in great companies. And Mm -hmm. if I have a product that can invest in great companies, that's the product that I'm going to sell to the market. And that product is, we're going to be on your cap table, second, third biggest check in a round. We will help you put together your future financings. We know everybody. We have a consistent, trustworthy relationship with everybody. And math-wise, I'm pretty confident our model works. But pro rata is and maintaining, you know, that uh, pro rata for at least a round or two seems to be important in terms of outcomes mathematically. So do you uh, require pro rata to make an investment? Uh, And, you know, if you're writing a 250K check, you know, that is, you know, a major investor threshold in most people's minds, you should get pro rata. And then do you take the pro rata? We, we try to support our companies for the life cycle and uh, we have an opportunity fund now. And so we can deploy capital, you know, up through a series CD uh, round and try to maintain, if not increase ownership. And that's only going to happen if they like us. So you can have, like you've been here, you can have contractual ownership, uh, pro rata rights. And then the lead or the company decides, no, we're not going to honor those. And either you sue the startup, which then you're out of business or you relent and say, okay. Noted. And there is a third gonna, option. There. Yeah. Fine. Uh, you talk about them on your podcast. I, I lost. No, that, but, uh, I just go directly to the uh, investor who's trying to take our pro rata. And I say, why would you do that to me? Sure. But that works sometimes. I'm just saying there are situations. And yeah. the real answer to me is if a founder doesn't want me to take my pro rata, I did something wrong. I didn't, mm. I didn't add enough to their journey so far that justified them wanting me back. And so we try to earn it. It's like, mm. 
again, it sounds like a, a nice soundbite, but it's true. And this is a decade's worth of learnings here. It's like, I have to earn what I get in this world. And yeah, I, I agree. I, I like your philosophy, but I do think that there are bad actors out there who will say to the founders explicitly, screw your early investors. Uh, we're only doing this DL if we get to do this, blah, 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 sure. blah, blah. And take but away the rights. But then I'm not going to send them deals in the future. And I know I, I'm I'm playing along. So yes, they have you do had that. that happen with the firm? Oh and yeah. Then how do you? How do you? They don't know do, how much I dislike them. Oh, they don't. So no. you don't call them and well, say, no, they just hey. never see things from me again. And when I'm talking Ooh. to a founder and they want to know mm. who to raise from, well, that firm is not, or that person is not on the list anymore. So they don't even know the ramifications of their behavior. See, I Why make it explicit to them. They did it to me. They did it knowing that I am a repeat actor in this industry. So if they want to f, uh, f me over, like, yes. I, I remember, I know That's how this works. That's a classic ghost. It's a classic ghost move. See, I take a different approach. You're, you're, you grew up in I Manhattan, used to right? be, I used to be louder and I used to be more, I just have taken a different approach here. Take like, is that for your, is, what, is that because of psychotherapy or something? And you, you had, you didn't want to be confrontational. No, my shrink or? is, my shrink's great, but no, it's, I think it's derived from like, you knew what you were doing and you effed me over. Why did you do that? You clearly don't give a shit about my relationship with you. So noted. Now I know where you stand. You don't know that I know that. So game on. And it's oh, not yeah. passive. It's instead passive aggressive or like cautious, it's like, like secretly aggressive. Yeah. No, I mean, it is definitely a strategy. I tend to pick up the phone and call the person and then I just tell them explicitly what's going to happen. Oh, I, and if I they, want literally, I'll, I've done it four or five times in my career. Like it, it happens every two years. And four to five times I've done it, the person has been apologetic and then, you know, kind of denied they even were going to do it. Yeah, I look, if like, we, listen, if I'm we the point guard here. If we know? want something, we'll ask for it. We have great relationships. But I'll tell you what I've learned. The best firms don't do it to you, even though they have reputations. No. They don't. Sequoia would never do it. The Be best benchmark would never do it. Don't do that to you. No. It's that next tier of firms that do it to you. And right. And, and why do I, they do it? If you were to do the psychology of it, why you know do they it gets do it? misbranded in this industry? What? The, the later stage investors, the growth stage, the crossover investors. If I am a founder and I'm looking at sort of late, like there are firms, whether it's addition and what Lee Fixell is building, or, um, you know, you can look at Green Oaks, these firms that are not loud and in the market. These are great investors and they are incredibly helpful to companies as they scale. And they also don't do it because they understand the long game here. And to me, what happens is there's a tier B and a tier C of VC. And those investors don't understand how to balance sort of selfishness and ruthlessness with some long-term relationship building. And that's what I've discovered is that if you try to work with the best investors, they are very authentic, genuine in their relationship building and will be consistent in their behavior. Yeah, it's interesting. Tell me about um, Lee Fixel. You work with him? Addition, I, former Tiger? Yeah, I think, I, I mean, if you look at Lee's portfolio from the outside, you know, while he was at Tiger, Lee made early investments into some monumentally great companies. And uh, he was you know, not a growth stage investor only at Tiger. It was, um, you know, companies like Warby Parker or Harry's or um, Peloton. Uh, 
Peloton and um, uh, Flipkart, early mm. investments into those companies. And so I think uh, Lee being on his own and building addition from the ground up, uh, you know, his, his brand's not fully out there yet as a standalone entity. Addition uh, isn't, but I think the people who know Lee and uh, are fortunate enough to get in front of him, uh, he's he's a world-class investor who's in our space and uh, will, looking back on this era, be one of the, the true standouts. Yeah, and he's raising a 1.3 billion dollar fund with addition, or he's raised. Um, and according to reports, a third of that will go to early stage, which is 400 million dollars <laughs> into early stage startups, Bigger than our and then two thirds into growth. Uh, but he doesn't do any press. But let you know, Lee, come on the pod. Let's just uh, chop it up. You can do it like a, you know, for de- just do it for the deal flow. Just do it for the deal flow, Lee. <laughs> no, we've invited him on the pod three times. He. He hasn't ghosted us. I don't think he even returned our emails, um, which is which is a which but, is a but weird I one. think I think yeah. you you hear about these sort of names in our industry who are good at branding or good at tweeting or get their names out there. But when you go get the sort of reputational check on people, they're not all consistent. Yet, you know, the the biggest and best firms get hit on because they're easy to hit on. But man, are they good at what they do? And I think that. You know, we want to be in this business for a long time and play alongside of everybody. And that's what we've, we've sort of watched over the years is the people who are the best at what they do. You know, Union Square Ventures and the quality of relationship that they build with companies, it's admirable, right? They, they see these investments and these companies and people through. Um, and they're awesome. And, you know, Andreessen and Founders Fund and, uh, all, all the others are great to work with as well. So I, um, and benchmark and and thrive, um, et cetera. So when you uh, look back on the career, what patterns do you see? That sounds like I'm retiring. Yes. Now that you're <laughs> you're a 36-year-old LeBron, and, yeah, 36-year-old LeBron, and you're still in the league. <laughs> no, I, I mean, it, it, you have crossed the Rubicon, by the way. Once you take other people's money, that just changes everything, I think. Noted. Um, and it definitely gets inside your head. So really, the two two important questions I want to wrap with here is one, how does your uh, behavior change when you're investing other people's money? And then I want to talk about, you know, when you look back at the pattern and you and you look for, you know, why did these ones break out and these ones didn't, you know, do, do you find a pattern in your own ability, your own placing of the bets or the nature of the founders and, and their products? When we took outside money, I, I did my very best to tell every one of our investors that I we're not changing. Um, we are we are who we are, and you know we want to be great at what we do. We want to be great at our craft. Uh, a, a cheesy way to think about it is like the benchmark of seed. If we can just be this small uh, boutique firm that invests amazingly well across the seed space, um, I think that's a, a great sort of dream to have. And uh, I think that's how we sort of view ourselves is to go out there and build the best early stage firm uh, we can build. And I think our investors uh, hopefully align with that. For me personally, I don't panicked every day. I like, am, am, I have immense FOMO. I'm neurotic and panicked that like, we're not good at this tomorrow because you only know how good you were like 10 years ago. And so I feel like when I took other people's money, uh, I ratcheted up the pressure and I I've always worked incredibly hard and I feel like I just keep pouring my energy into uh, working harder and, and trying to be good at what we do. And so uh, I have a lot like it felt like a reset where 
yes, we were good for, for nine years, but now I get to reset and start from scratch. And now I have like nine, 10 more years to prove that we're good. Um, because they don't benefit from my history. They only benefit from this 2019 starting point. So I have to, I have to be good at what I do. Um, when you look at the pattern, I think it's, it definitely increases your in your focus and intensity for sure when you have other people's money you know going in alongside yours or becoming the majority of what you invest which is probably what will happen now that you have these giant funds and it does i think we're a boutique we don't call them giant we're a boutique jason you're boutique yeah i know yeah, thank you giant for seed i guess has now changed with kotu and you know we're, we're a boutique firm based in, in addition, new york city just harmless nice quality investors i i i don't understand how these like very large seed funds that are 400 million or something are going to be able to write that's tough math yeah how do you do 400 million dollar investments and then manage it how many partners do you need to have how many uh company you would if you're investing in one out of 100 you have to in to do 400 investments you have to meet forty thousand people really you're gonna meet forty thousand companies over what period the 30 month period that's ten thousand that's a thousand companies these a month? funds are now 12 month funds don't be silly yeah, and if they well, if they deploy it, let's just say they deploy it over th thirty months, just to be reasonable. Uh, you know, putting ten million to work every month that means you're doing ten startups a month. If you had to meet a hundred, means you're meeting for each of those ten, you have to meet a thousand companies a month. If you're working, you know, twenty days a month, uh, you have to meet fifty companies a day. It's, it's just math, people. It's fifty companies a day. The only, I mean, an associate can meet three what, or four. What's my pattern ahead. recognition? I'm cutting you off to come back yes. to your your to yes. refocus. Well, let's go to pattern um, recognition. Look, like you you have you have a rubric right in your head when you're when you're meeting a, an entrepreneur. It's team, which is like you you say that word, but man, is that underrated? And it's it's important to understand what that actually means. So, team, market idea, product. Those are the four areas that you're looking at. And then why is, in essence, what you're trying to ask, why is this team the best team to build this product right now? And do we care? And that do we care comes back to us. It's a taste thing. Like, am I interested in this business? If they're right on everything they're saying, like, does it matter? Is this something I want to invest in? And that's something you never push on to the entrepreneur, but that's your internal like taste judgment. And there's sometimes when a founder makes you, yeah and, a, yeah. and there's sometimes when a founder makes you care. You're like, I don't really care about what they're building, but I have to give that person money. And that's yes. a different lens of it. And that's when the team spikes so big that you're like, hey, here, hope this works. Right. Like, I don't, I don't really care, but you care enough to make this yes. important. Um, and then it comes back to team and to us. The biggest pattern I've taken away is you need to fund people who are strategic thinking geniuses. And genius is not this academic implementation of that word. It's a, like, you have to fund the best. The only companies in a space that are going to work are the best companies. And so is the founder that you are funding the best? And is the team that you are funding the best? If we see a deal, what's the risk of that deal? Is the risk of that deal technology, product, marketing, sales, team building? And you identify that risk. And then you say, is the person that is going to solve that risk in the room right now? So three business people building a technology risk company, we're out. Yeah. On the flip side, 
three technologists building a sales company, if they are not aware that this is a sales company, well, you shouldn't probably fund them. And you have to sort of drill it down to what's the risk of what they're going out to do. And finding businesses that are tech risk, which I think is where you lean heavier into just the engineer driven uh, founder, those are different than I think a lot of the, the software eats the world businesses you see today where go to market and product become vital. And that technical team needs to have an appreciation uh, for those areas. It doesn't mean in dev tools, you need to have, you know, a magical designer, but it does mean in bottoms up SaaS, something like Airtable, it's so, a product company. So problem team match <laughs> fit, yes, right? Like they're totally. Yeah. You, and you, you can't solve the problem if you don't have the people to solve the problem. And then when people say it's a people business, that's really what they mean. And, and But there are some people who are just really good at attracting talent. So that's that is a superpower, that, right? That next one of like, yeah. is the person sitting in front of me, and it's a CEO that you're looking at with this lens typically, is a person in front of me capable of standing in a room of 100 people and 1,000 people and leading an organization of greatness? And what is the quality of those 100 or 1,000 people going to be? Can you see this person attracting great talent? So- in order to hire, like it, it gets, again, it's a nice soundbite, but in order to hire somebody to your startup, you have to convince somebody to stop whatever it is they're doing and join your journey. Hmm. Like that is a big ask. And if you're yes. going after great people, that's a huge ask. So you're going to well, have to Especially in a market, right? If you mentioned before how many investors there are, you, one of the existential risks we have right now is there's so much money in the market that that getting somebody great to fill a position, well, that person can go start their own company yes. or Overnight. be an independent, you know, and, and if be you an are independent. Great, if you have a great background and if you've done great things in your career, to join someone else's company is a monumental ask. And there are companies that are able to recruit those people very well, and there are companies that can't. And if you can't, well, who are you recruiting? You can have an answer for like, I can't hire established talent, but I am going to be magical at hiring like talent. Emerging talent. Whatever talent that I identify. Yes. From right. pockets that, but a lot of the times it needs to be inherent with, with in the team where those people are going to come from. So mm -hmm. did you go to school with them? Did you work with them? Have you already identified and met them? So if you're not from within a established network, you can do things to get around that sort of limitation, which is start building a ground up network on your own. Money doesn't sort of unlock the ability to meet people. It unlocks the ability to pay them, but it doesn't unlock the ability to meet them. So if you mm. coming into a, a seed round can't identify where some of the three or four first hires are going to come from. I think you're behind the ball. That's yeah. so we like we like to look and say like, have you done all the work you can do up until this point? And that's in this market where things can get funded in hours, not always going to be the case. But a lot of the time, that's sort of what a founder will do is I'm going to push this as far as I can every step of the way. Yeah, it really is like uh, an amazing skill to be able to get somebody of high quality to not start their own company. Uh, you know, I was talking to this about somebody was like looking for a podcast host and I was like, you do realize like, it's so simple to start a podcast 
that your ability to then go get a podcaster to work on your project is going to be hard because they can just show up and do their project. So therefore, you're either going to have to develop talent in the podcasting space or, you know, and then you're going to lose them and it's going to be hard to keep them. It's just some businesses, if they're, if it's such an open playing field like podcasting, it's hard. And you're seeing it now with journalists, you know, leaving to start their own publications or sub stacks or podcasts or other things. They can become independent so quickly that they're become functionally unhireable, right? And like, does how it, do you? It creates this amazing admiration for the teams that do scale with like depth of talent, right? Where Amazon, Netflix, Tesla. And, and you SpaceX. go back to early Facebook, like the, the first 50, 100 people at Facebook, that depth of talent, on, yeah. you don't, Look you what don't they see went on any, to. you don't see anything near that today. You can't get well, PayPal. PayPal was very similar. But today, in today's market, when everybody can start their own company, the idea of aggregating 100 people at that level is so unique. Stripe has been able to do it. They're probably the company uh, in today's modern startup world that has done that the best, right? What do you you think it takes to do that? Founders who are able to tell you their story and their ambition in a way that makes you give up your independent dream and say like, I'm going to do that with them. And a business opportunity that you can intellectually align yourself to. Yeah, see that's, it's such a big problem you're working on. It's got such amazing transcendent potential to be a trillion dollar company, whatever it is. Uh, meaningful in the world. So that that's your point about the storytelling, right? And I have to join you. You, oh my, I've never met any, I have, it has to be this lens of like, I've never met anybody like you. You are right. better than other people I've ever met. Adam Newman, WeWork. It's just, it's so transcendent. I have to be on that. Were you involved in WeWork? You're in New York. I got to ask you, you must have interfaced with we, Adam we Newman a million times. We passed on WeWork from afar. We didn't actually see the deal. Uh, we, we, uh, kept hearing about WeWork as a place where companies were going to work out of and never asked like, what's WeWork? We just thought it was a, another co-working space. And uh, so, no, I never saw the deal. I've met Adam before, but um, uh, we were not involved in WeWork. What's your take on what happened there? Like the out-of-control founder oh, and the out-of-control well, business? Like, I, I, think, I think the media does this world no service. I'm not going to sit here and make excuses for WeWork or talk about like what they did. But the media is like, this is why why am I quieter than I used to be? Because Mm. all that happened in our world was it used to be startups are cool. Like this is intellectually and media wise and academically fascinating people starting a company. Mm. And then what happened and oh my God, here are these unicorns. Let's like talk about the magic of these companies. And then what happened was it shifted to unicorn hunting. Hmm. Okay, that company's good. Let's figure out how to get it. Yeah. And it's this, uh, and, and I understand why those are more interesting stories. More people read them. But in reality, what happens is you bring down things that have created a significant amount of value in a relatively positive way. It doesn't mean that the founders that have been chastised publicly are all good. And it doesn't mean that there's not actual bad uh, HR issues or bad companies. And those things should get rooted out. And right. um, I don't I don't in any way support cultures that have done harm to the people that work there. But I do believe the, the way the world shifted and it's broader than just tech, right? It's the whole world. We're in a, no, the whole in a, world has become like 
attack. so polarized, whatever the Trump presidency, yeah, it's, whatever's it's going a, on in the it's world. It's attack mode. And so yeah. I just, that's not what I do this for. I don't do this to- yeah. So you've, for, you've basically said, I'm going to put my head down and just go to work. And I don't really care about this other noise that's going on. But you, you do have this anti-capitalism kind of vibe in America that I thought we'd never see where people are more interested in some cases in a handout than an opportunity and, you know, more interested in universal basic income loud, than investment. Or, or they're just the loudest ones, right? And Or that's and, it, yeah. And that that's what the the flavor of this moment is. And it's it's because of the income disparity, right? And it needs to be solved. And it's not to ignore those voices. It's to say we've created a system here where too many people are being left behind. The irony to me is that the best thing that will happen to fix that is technology. It doesn't yes. mean that the 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 founders of these technology companies aren't going to be the biggest winners, but the distribution of opportunity that the internet and software has unlocked is the magic of this moment. I mean, if you think about, you know, the ability for people to go make money on Etsy or to rent an extra room they have on Airbnb, all of these things. Or to uh, learn. Or to right? learn, like, right. Everything the amount for free on of YouTube. information and education that is out there for the taking is because of technology. It's unlocked 100%. that in a way that we couldn't dream about 20 years ago. Yeah. And, and you can connect with people. So it's not just learn, it's network. It's open up doors. If you, right. if you want, like, and it's not to say that it's, it's equal, but it's out there. And I think that technology has done more to create opportunities. This whole creator class that you're seeing come about these solo entrepreneurs who are just building independent businesses. You get, you get shit on in our world for building a lifestyle business. A lifestyle yeah. business is a wonderful thing. It is allowing you to have a lifestyle that you want. And yeah, people got that twisted. I don't, I, lifestyle business originally meant thing. that you're going to have a kick ass lifestyle. You're going to have a lifestyle that's so good that you would not get on the venture industrial complex treadmill, which you're is make a, a good thing. Yes, you're going to make a million dollars a year from this business working three days a week and be skiing four days a week or hanging out with your kids or four days a week. Or you're making $150,000 instead of $60,000 right. in a job that you're happy with that you control. And, yes. And the, the platforms that allow you to work independently versus for a boss, even right. if it's not the end outcome you're looking for, they begin to unlock parts of growth that I think are beneficial to society. So I struggle with this notion of tech being evil. I struggle yeah. with this notion of all these entrepreneurs doing things that are negative for the world. I do believe that if I look back over the past 15 years at the startups that uh, I've watched start and grow, ones we've been involved with and, and ones we haven't, the net broad opportunities that are, are created here are immense. And it's what always, leaves me optimistic for the future and not just sort of critical of the present. It, it's, it's such a great observation. And if you look at what the gig economy did, I know a lot of people like, oh, the gig economy is so terrible um, and people don't have a safety net and all these issues. When you look at what the gig economy did is they took a lot of jobs that were off the books and that were jobs that existed uh, in the underground gray black market of employment, i.e., you know, uh, illegal immigrants or, or people who were getting paid off the books, like food delivery, 
food delivery was done. People don't remember this, but when I was in the restaurant business, especially in New York, you know, somebody was an immigrant from another country. Especially in New York, right? Especially in New York. So you'd have somebody who's a Chinese immigrant or a Mexican immigrant or previously an Irish or an Italian one, whatever it is, New York's the melting pot. And you had this rotating group of immigrants come and they would be given $2 per delivery in cash and then whatever they got in tips. And they would just sit in the back of the restaurant and some nights they get zero deliveries and they might throw them 10 bucks. Sometimes they might get seven and they would make minimum wage or double minimum wage. But it was this sort of like underground economy. Same with people picking, you know, fruit or something like that in a, in a field. Look, it and, just, and, it, and, and it's now it's a, for, an actual it's job. It's hard for us yeah. in our seats in a very fortunate yeah. position in life to put our shoe self in those shoes. However, the opportunities that these platforms have created are yes. independent and they allow more control. And yep. if you play this whole thing out, yes, there are flaws and in, in given moments of time, there are bigger flaws, right? As yes. something is scaling, it's more broken than when it's, when it's scaled. But right. when you get to an equilibrium, if there's supply and demand and the, the demand is I want delivery food and I'm willing to pay X or Y for it. It will normalize the supply so there is an equitable trade. And if on the supply side, somebody can have an independent life through that unlock, that is a tremendous movement in the right direction for our society. And even, you know, Facebook and Twitter are getting, you know, railed on for the, the censorship slash freedom of speech issues. And yeah. I agree, right? There's a lot of complexity in there. There's there's not a simple answer. Just like, by the way, most things in life, there is a middle there, and there nuance. is a gray. Yes. Nuance. Yeah. So there's a lot of nuance in that. And, and it's not right or wrong. But what Facebook and Twitter have done for the world is a net positive. A hundred percent. It's 100%, given people yeah. who don't have voices a voice. It's given people yeah. have an independent channel to speak. It has created relationships for people that were never able to, to have them before. And, you know, Facebook, because I think it's, it's the monumental one here, created this social part of the internet that today the offshoots are everything in, in that world that have benefited Tinder, right? Tinder gets shit on for being whatever it is, but like, man, the amount of marriages that have happened because of Tinder of is yeah. such a net benefit to the world. You don't yes. have to random. I met my wife in a nightclub. There's a, a normal story to it, but yeah. that's the, that's the nice soundbite to it. But like, you don't have to. By the way, that out. was how people met. That was <laughs> in the, the 80s and event. 90s. Like, you met either in a bar or a club, or through a friend, or and, at and work. There's a democratization or of college. access yes. that has happened through all of these internet platforms that I think the world continues to judge because there's a lot of wealth in it. And a lot of wealth creation, but there's a lot of challenges that these platforms have that are not always perfect. But I do believe, you know, Amazon is a, is a well-meaning company. They are not out to harm the world. They are definitely challenging to businesses that are not capable of competing, but they are not out to harm the world. And I look at all the big tech companies and I just don't see evil. I see incredible progress in terms of the things that they've unlocked. It's pretty amazing when you look at, uh, there's an incredible graph of how, how heterosexual couples, couples have met data from 2009 yes, and 2017. It's a, it's, a, it's a nutty graph. I've seen that graph. It's the, crazy. Like the anybody online who's born graph in the 90s is almost a hockey stick. 
it's a hockey stick that they met online and like met in a bar or restaurant. Is the reverse hockey stick? Well, it's actually it's it's stayed somewhat uh, flat. The but one that at, the uh, ones met at church is uh, there's like met a at church just crashed. plummeted. Uh, neighbors, I think, uh, plummeted. Uh, met in school plummeted. Met from family massive decline 30 percent down to six percent so to so to sit here and criticize any of these things when in reality they've they've actually distributed opportunity i don't know that that's like that's what's so cool about what we get to do you get to work with people who in the end make these massive impacts right your investment mm -hmm. in uber the impact that uber's had on the world and now uber e it's it's insane and the the width of that impact. It's not just in yeah. America. It's all over the world. Global. And it's I mean, that was when I had my mind blown is when like, I got off a plane in Tokyo or and you you press know, a button. Cutter or Sydney and you, you see an Uber s logo and you, people are on an Uber line halfway around the world. It was just And what Uber did was train people that you press a button on your phone and something in the real world can happen. Yes. And that company that trains the world of that unlock will yeah. unlock another 100,000 companies yep. after them to do that same type the of The on-demand economy, which, right? I mean, exactly. and then if you look at, you know, the I my belief is those jobs, entry-level jobs that people could have on demand, those used to come with conditions. You show up at 6 a.m. and you're done at 11. And, and you have, you have a to bad go, boss. Yeah, and you got a bad boss and you got to travel 90 minutes to the job. And so it was arduous and painful. And then people then said, well, wait a second, I could just work four hours and I could pick which four hours I work? I'm not going to go work at Starbucks or Apple or Walmart or some other bad job. But, but, but and those people had to raise their offering in price, right? And and Apple, Starbucks, and Walmart are probably at the the best version of this, yes. right? And and that's and the pressure to me is that hopefully what we're doing is rising the tide across the hundred percent competition say, in the free market. Does yeah, that. everybody needs to put forth a product that can attract talent, that can retain talent. And that can inspire people every day to work there, right? What Starbucks has done with free free education to me is an inspiring uh, and healthcare too, corporate, right? Corporate. So I just I, I feel like tech and 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 you know technology wise, some of the cost savings on the supply side. So if you look at where logistics and supply chain innovation has improved, these are unlocks for big businesses that can get passed through. What's the biggest issue to me? The stock market rewarding quarter by quarter earnings, which don't allow sort of long term thinking and right. long term value creation, which punishes the entire system. And that's well, like not the private companies. So, I mean, in a way, when you say it like that, it's actually the private companies get to think in a decade long way, don't you think? And then the yeah, public and then companies show up and, and lap the public company. Exactly. Which is like what Uber did. Like they could actually think long, right? When people are like, oh, these companies are losing money for a decade. It's like also known as an investment. <laughs> but <laughs> it, it just, I think there's a like cultural idea that the the world should take a step back and sort of look a little bit longer out. And that's why you can be prepared for things like a pandemic. You can be prepared for yeah. uh, sort of economic shifts and try to invest, as you said, investing in the future, invest in education, invest in public health, invest in infrastructure, not because the payoff's tomorrow, but because the payoff in 20 years is going to be so monumental to the world that it's worth doing. And Coming back to our business, that's why the timeline that I operate on, this decade-long timeline, 
it's hard, but that's that's what you sign up for. And you just have to stay patient. You know what? Hard, but going through this mutual couples therapy that we just did for the last 70 minutes. It was good. It, it, it makes me inspired in a way. I kind of I kind of want to stay in the relationship with you, David. I'll call you. I was you, thinking this was the end of the relationship. Now I kind of feel like I want to re-up for another decade with you. There's always <laughs> season six, man. We got it. <laughs> we got it. All right, listen, David Tish, uh, one of the great, authentic, early stage investors out there, uh, just grinding it out day after day, making those investments, 30 a year, 40 a year. How many people you got working at the firm now, now that it's a firm? We're, we're a team of six. I have amazing people that work with me that I, I Crazy. feel fortunate to work with every day. I have 12 people now. Um, six work on like the podcast, six work in the investment company, basically. And it is now like, whoa, this is like becoming a bit of a, of a, a factory, a bit of a, a, a firm, right? And it's going to be all these interesting Adam and firms. I have been together for 11 years. Our partner, Nimi, joined six years ago. Uh, Greg joined six years ago, left, but but missed us and came back. And Adina and Claire have been with us. Uh, Claire Claire came, left, and, and came back. And Adina's been with we'll us We've got a couple boomerangs in there? Yeah, we had two boomerangs. And I feel yeah, like I that means boomerang. you're good. Boomerangs yeah, means- Yeah, I've got a couple boomerangs. It takes a certain type of boss to- curate boomerangs like i think you have to be an even keel person who's like oh you want to explore some other things good luck with that you know hire and train your i get I sad internally don't don't kid your I've, I have feelings but um look i think we're a unique team and i think what's cool about us is we work as a team and box group deals are box group deals not individual deals and so such a great way to do it i mean that's how sequoia does and everybody else is like you got to really think like it's a team effort and we we rise and fall together you know and like it's so random like one investment over another returns the fund. And, you know, there was one fund that fought tooth and nail to not invest in Google. And the, it basically that toxicity of passing on Google and that partner passing on it in that meeting, just, I would say the name of the firm, but it just, that firm doesn't exist anymore. I basically. name names. You're not naming names. It's cool. I'm not naming names. I, I, <laughs> I can't remember is really the reason. It will come to me. It might have been more David Dow, but I don't want to say now, but there was a firm that yeah. I think it was more David Dow that famously passed on. And if somebody will correct me if I I'm just, wrong. Oh, George Zachary told the story. All right. So the, the receipts are out there. The T is spelt, but you know, you don't hear about more David Dow anymore. Nobody knows more David Dow, but you remember more David Dow from a decade ago. I just think our business is about uh, like actual alignment. Right. Mm. And so if our team isn't aligned, we're not going to be aligned with uh, the companies that we invest in. And, uh, you know, we, we all six of us try to engage with every company we invest in because all six of us have a different network and we want to be again, just real people in this business. And that's, that's how we approach our business. So thank you for having me on. Yeah. Let's it. do a deal together soon. Deal. I'll talk to you soon, brother. Okay. Thanks, Jason. We'll see you all next time on Angel and our super angel season. Thanks to our partners for supporting independent media like This Week in Startups.